things as your church. In Christ's matchless name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning is October 1st, 2017. I say that not because I think your phones uh, are no longer working. I say that because that's a significant date. It's actually significant because it's my dad's birthday, but I already talked to him on the phone last night and wished him happy birthday. So it's actually even more significant than that. It's significant because it means that 499 years and 11 months ago, the world changed forever. Now, no one who was actually alive on October 1st, 1517, 500 years ago today, nobody who was alive in the world at that time had any idea that one of the biggest watershed events in history was about to take place. But it was. Uh, the setting is Central Europe, uh, Western Europe, we would now call it today, uh, more specifically Germany, and the part of uh, Germany then known as Saxony. At that time, there was only one recognized real Christian church. There were a few splinter groups of Christians outside that church, but uh, pretty much there was only one church in the world, and it was the church we know of as the Catholic Church, still called that today. The word Catholic itself means universal, and it was universal for 1,500 years. It was the only church. And the teachings of the church at that time were based on a combination of uh, principles taught in the Bible, on the one hand, and what Catholic scholars both then and still today call tradition, on the other hand. That's tradition with a capital T. That's a very specific term. Uh, tradition was officially sanctioned ideas and beliefs that came from past popes and scholars, uh, drawn from various sources, including the Bible, but also going beyond the Bible to other ancient documents like apocryphal books, uh, and even drawing from uh, Greek philosophers such as Aristotle, who were tremendously influential on how Western culture was shaped. Now, the point of all of this is that only the church and its hierarchy, primarily embodied in the Pope, of course, the head of the church, could declare for Christians what was authoritative, what it is the Bible teaches, what Christianity is about, and what you are obligated to believe if you're a Christian. Only the church hierarchy could determine that. That was the setting. Well, enter a young, nondescript, and otherwise unremarkable German monk by the name of Martin Luther. Luther was a pastor, a priest, they were called in that day. Uh, he was also a budding theology professor. He was uh, a good scholar studying uh, to become a theology professor. And Luther, and as a young man, was deeply impressed by the weight of his own sin before a holy God. Uh, far more so than most people nowadays are. Uh, Luther was just struck with his sinfulness before the holy God that he believed in and that he served as a priest and that he was getting to know better as he studied the Bible in his formal education. Uh, Luther probably would have been diagnosed as clinically depressed if he lived in our day and age or if a modern psychologist traveled back in time to visit him in his day and age. He, he lost sleep over it. He couldn't stand the weight of his sin before God. And so he did everything the church told a person to do in that day and age to be absolved of his 
or her sins. And he did them all with a limitless energy and a matchless zeal. There was probably nobody who followed the teachings of the church more thoroughly and with more passion than did Martin Luther in his day. And yet, he still felt the guilty weight of his sin before a holy God. Well, this was a day and an age in which uh, most people weren't literate. Uh, They couldn't necessarily read. And even if they could, it wouldn't have done them much good in the Bible because the Bible at that time uh, was only accessible in its original languages of Greek and Hebrew and had then been translated into Latin, which was the language of academia. Uh, The average French peasant or German peasant or, or Italian peasant couldn't read the Bible, even if they could read. Now, Luther was learning, though, to study the Bible because he was a scholar. And as he studied the Bible more, he had direct access to the biblical text, which was something the average Christian didn't have back in that day. That's hard for us to get our heads around in our modern, almost universally literate society. But that's the way it was. And as he began to study the Bible more and more, he began to notice some differences between what the Bible pretty clearly said. Like, it wasn't really controversial or difficult to figure out. It was just pretty plain if you actually just read the Bible, what it was saying. And yet he noticed some differences between those plain teachings of the Bible and some of the things that were being taught by the church. Not all of them, but some of them. And this began to trouble, trouble Luther. His quest to be absolved of his sin drove him into further study of the Bible, and over time, Luther became convinced that the church in its history had made errors. It had come to say that some things were true that at best were not based in the Bible, and at worst were actually completely contradicted by clear teachings of the Bible. So how then could they be true if the Bible was the word of God as the church taught it was? That led Luther to take what at the time was a simple and relatively unremarkable step. He eventually, being a theology professor, uh, formulated his ideas into 95 specific statements that were designed to be debated by theology professors. So he wrote these statements down. We know these statements today as the famous 95 Theses, of Martin Luther, he wrote them down in order to engender a debate with other Bible scholars to say, we're the professors, we're the Bible guys, we're the priests, let's, let's discuss what the Bible's really teaching here. Am I right, or is the church, church's historical position, right? And he then posted these 95 statements on the door of his church. Uh, the church also doubled as the local university, which was common back in that day. And so, um, Everybody could read these statements before the debate took place. Uh, He wasn't able to post them on the university's website, uh, nor could he pull out his phone and post them on his own blog. So what they did back then was they posted them on the door. The, the, The door of the church was essentially the bulletin board for the university. So all the official notices would go up there. And when there were debates that were coming, the debate points would go up there in advance so everybody could read them and see what the debate was about. The point that we have to mention here is that this was not in any way, shape, or form a radical move by Martin Luther. Now, some of you who have heard about um, Reformation history have sometimes in the modern day seen this act of Luther pounding his 95 theses to the church door as a tremendous, bold act of defiance. It was nothing of the kind. It was the most garden-variety, run-of-the-mill action that any theology professor would take back then. Because Luther, at this point, had no idea he was about to start a movement. He simply wanted to discuss the Bible 
which is what theology professors are supposed to do. So the posting of, of debate points on a church door happened all the time. But when Luther posted these particular debate points on October 31st, 1517, exactly 500 years ago to the day later this month, it set off a chain reaction that revolutionized culture, altered the course of Western civilization, and ultimately redeemed the gospel. It was like the smallest little pebble that eventually led to an avalanche that forever changed the landscape, and we are still living in the wake of the Reformation today. This month marks the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which most historians would date to the time that Luther pounded that piece of paper into that church door. The Reformation was a historical movement that clarified and defined biblical Christianity and has continued to do so for half a millennium now, 500 years and still counting. Now, the Reformation was a large and complex historical movement that unfolded over many, many years. Historians have devoted their entire careers to understanding it. And so because it was so complex, very early on, there was a need to kind of bottom line, what is this whole thing about? Like, when it really comes down to just the bottom line, what's the debate? What are we talking about? What are we arguing over? What are people, in some cases, even suffering and dying for? And the need to kind of summarize what the whole thing was about led uh, fairly early on to the development of five statements that sort of captured, this is really the essence of what the whole thing is about. They were five short statements. And these five statements kind of became slogans for the people who followed the teachings of Martin Luther and others who agreed with them. They became known as the Reformers, uh, later became known as Protestants. And these five slogans were sort of their, their rallying cry, the clarification of what we're all about. Now, since Latin was the language of, of debate of the day, the five slogans were originally in Latin, and they are known still today as the five solas of the Reformation. The word sola in Latin just means alone, only. That's all the word means. So there were five statements, the five alones of the Reformation capture what the whole Reformation was all about. And they are listed on the front of your bulletin. They are simply in Latin, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christa, sola deo gloria. Those of us that don't speak Latin, myself included, here's the English. <laughs> Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. Ultimately, if you want to know what the Reformation was all about, it boils down to those five points. There's a lot of other things going on, but this is really what the Reformation was all about, that we live as Christians under the authority of Scripture alone. That was the first statement. The next three go very closely together. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those were all ideas that were not universally taught by the medieval church. And then lastly, we live life for the glory of God alone. That is the point of it all. These were the five statements that really marked and defined this movement. And we're going to spend the next five Sundays in October. Isn't it amazing that God put five Sundays in this particular October? The five hundred. It's almost like He just wanted us to do this. So easy. What am I going to preach in October 2017? Duh! Okay. We're going to spend the next five Sundays looking one at a time at each of these statements because we are the modern heirs of the Reformation. You may have known that. You may have had no clue that that was true. 
But if you believe what this church and many other evangelical churches like to teach, then you are a modern heir of the Reformation when it comes to your uh, Christian faith and practice. This is who we are. Now, just a quick word before we dive into that process. We're going to start and spend the rest of our time this morning with that first statement, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Talk about what that means, what that meant back then, how it relates to us and who we are today. And then we'll take one each for the next four weeks and move through the month of October. Just before I dive into that, though, let me just say that um, in a day and age like ours, in which we live, uh, sometimes anybody points out that there is a difference of belief between two people in our sort of hypersensitive culture that we live in, that's often interpreted as a statement of hostility. Just because we're different, somehow that's an accusation from one person to another. And so, just to set the record straight at the very beginning, let me say, there is nothing in our desire as a church in looking at the Reformation and celebrating its 500th anniversary that is anti-Catholic in either its tone or um, its intent. Um, Our individual members bear no arrogance or hostility toward Roman Catholics. Um, Got some great neighbors and friends who are Roman Catholic. Love them dearly. Um, Nor do we even bear arrogance or hostility toward the Catholic Church as an institution. I think that's obvious to most of us who are members here, but in our day and age, I think it's important to just say that. Now, having said that, why are we doing this? We are doing it because... The beliefs, and these are pretty fundamental beliefs as they shape Christianity, the the differences of belief between Catholics and what we've now come to call Protestants on these issues that the Reformation first unearthed 500 years ago still persist today. There are still significant differences in the way Catholic and Protestant theologians understand these issues, and these are not secondary side issues. These are very important things. And so our goal is to know what we believe and why, because we need to if we're going to fulfill our God-given calling to make disciples. Uh, We spent three Sundays in September talking about who we are as a church and our mission, our uh, our calling from Jesus to be disciples who make disciples, and we've said repeatedly that's just the start of a conversation that we're going to have throughout the rest of the year as a church. So we're not really moving away from that um, intent. This is actually the next thing. That was what we're called to. This series is about who we are in terms of our beliefs. How do we live out God's call to be disciples? What are we discipling people into? What are we being discipled into ourselves? This is a great way to look at that. So with that in mind, let's dive in to this first um, principle, sola scriptura. I want to pick up uh, the story of Luther as a way to get into this because most of those 95 statements that he wrote, and 95 is a lot, you know, (laughs) Um, most of those 95 statements, or or a good number of them, dealt with a practice uh, of the medieval church of selling what were called indulgences. And some of you know this little snippet of church history. Um, this is not a church history lecture, so let me just summarize it this way so we'll understand the context. Basically, the idea was that um, dead Christians, Christians who had already died, were understood for the most part to be in purgatory. Um, which is kind of an in-between earth and heaven kind of place where you sort of work off some of your sin, as it were, uh, before you finally get to really go to heaven. The belief in purgatory itself is not really rooted in Scripture, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, The indulgence is a, a, a special grant that if you were a medieval Christian, somebody alive in the 16th century, you could purchase 
that was a special grant from the Pope in the name of a dead loved one that would remit some of their sins and therefore shorten their time in purgatory. Now, the Pope was the only one with the authority to do that, and so it was in his name and with his full authority uh, that this happened. So in this way, those who had money could get a deceased loved one out of purgatory and into heaven much faster if you just ponied up and bought an indulgence. That was the idea. Now, in truth, it was a uh, thinly veiled and fairly obvious way for the medieval church to raise cash. And it raised a lot of cash. People bought indulgences like crazy, and it became a significant source of income for the medieval church. Luther argued that this practice was not only unethical, but more to the point, it was unbiblical. Now, I'm happy to say that... um, Catholics hundreds of years ago agreed that it was unethical and they quit doing it. (laughs) I don't think the Roman Catholic Church has sold an indulgence for centuries and so I'm grateful that historically some of the corruption involved in the process has been cleaned up. But this wasn't just about um, corruption in the church. This was about what is our source of authority. You see, what happened was Luther's ideas spread like wildfire. He didn't even know that was going to happen. People started reading his stuff like crazy. They started listening to him. They started paying attention to him, and they started agreeing with him. Thousands and thousands and thousands of rank-and-file Christians all over Europe started saying, why am I going to buy that? That's not even a biblical practice, and so they quit buying indulgences. In fact, they stopped buying them in such large numbers that the church started to lose out on a significant source of money, and it was going into debt. It had financial problems. This Luther rascal was a dude who needed to be dealt with and dealt with quickly. A few years after posting his 95 theses, he was put on trial in a church court, which actually had civil authority too, by the way. They had the authority to imprison him and even execute him. He was told to recant everything and say that he was the one in the wrong uh, and not the church or face the consequences, which included the possible loss of his life. This is a well-known painting of Luther on trial declaring that he would base his life only on the word of God. You see, those who debated him said the practice of indulgences is perfectly justifiable, and they would go back 100, 200, 400, 500 years and quote popes and church uh, councils and official pronouncements that established this practice as being authoritative. And Luther's response was simply, I have an older document yet. I have an older source yet. What is that source? He said, it's St. Paul. It's St. Peter. It's the scriptures. And Luther said, paraphrase, unless I am convinced by holy scripture and plain reason that I am wrong, I will not recant anything. You see, forced to choose between the authority of men, even church-sanctioned, God-ordained men, people who are thought to be godly, And the Bible, Luther stakes his life and, frankly, his eternal destiny on the Bible. So do you see how quickly a practical kind of ethical issue drives down deeply into an authority issue? It's not just about, is it right or wrong for the medieval church to sell indulgences? It's about who decides. How do you determine whether that or anything else is right or wrong? What is our authority? That's what this first point, sola scriptura, scripture alone, is all about. These aren't just questions for the theologians. These are questions for every Christian. What was Luther reading that gave him such boldness? 
There are several passages of scripture. If I could preach five sermons on this topic, I still wouldn't run out of things to say, but I only have one. So if you've got your Bibles, turn them to the passage we're going to look at this morning. First Peter, uh, sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. I want us to notice three things in this passage. Of all the things that could be said in this paragraph, because it's packed full of stuff, three things directly pertain to where we're going this morning. The first is the most important point. I'll spend the most time on it. Christian confidence is in the prophetic word, as it's called here. In other words, the Bible. Christian confidence, who I am in Christ and and, and how I know that I'm okay with God, is in the written word of God as shared through the prophets and the apostles. Verse 16 begins, we did not follow cleverly devised, this is the apostle Peter in the first century talking and writing to churches that he had helped uh, start and get going. He said, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we were eyewitnesses, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice right away, before we dive into the heart of this passage, Peter starts out by separating two sources of authority. He says, on the one hand, we could have come at you and tried to impress you either with our charisma or our learning or our position or our credentials so that you would have believed what we as the apostles said simply because we were apostles. If it's good enough for Peter, if it's good enough for me, is that as far as your faith goes? The Bible says your faith should go further than that. It's not about Peter. It's not about Paul. It's not about who was appointed whom and who was what where and who is the most clever or eloquent or who can make the most persuasive case because if our belief is in that, then our belief is in a person and his charisma. No, no, no. He says, on the other hand, it was not about us. It was about the fact that we were eyewitnesses to the reality of God fulfilling his word in human history. And that's what you should place your faith in. What, witness, uh, what eyewitness account is he talking about? He describes it in the next few verses. Verse 17, for when we, uh, sorry, when he, Jesus Christ, had received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard that very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. And we'll pause right here for a moment. The Apostle Peter is clearly referring to an event in history that he was an eyewitness to. And if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know what event he's talking about. This is the event that we often refer to as the transfiguration of Jesus. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, My daily Bible reading took me there this morning. I was shocked at the providence of God. (laughs) Matthew 17. Jesus takes Peter and James and John, three of his closest disciples, up to this mountaintop and they see him literally transfigured. They get this vision of Jesus in holy glory and standing next to him then are Moses and Elijah, guys that had been dead for a long, long time. And yet there they are and they're talking to Jesus and and Peter's going like, whoa, my goodness, this is amazing. And just before he starts, or just as he starts to open up his mouth and talk a little bit, which was fairly common for Peter, if you know Peter, He gets this voice from heaven as if God thought it was God's job to talk, not Peter's. He just kind of bowls right over what Peter was saying. And he says, this, referring to Jesus, is my son. Listen to him. And the experience was so overwhelming, Peter falls over like a dead man. You think he remembered that experience? And then when he finally comes to himself, he looks up and there's Jesus normal again. Jesus is like, all right, come on, let's go. 
what just happened? Something very significant just happened. Something very significant just happened. In fact, he tells us the significance of it in verse 19. We have... There's a couple different ways to translate this. I'm going to read you the ESV Bible, which is right in almost everything it translates. This is one exception. (laughs) I think. We have something even more sure, the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention. There's two basic ways that that phrase, originally written in the Greek language, is understood. The first is the way the ESV translators have taken it. We have something even more sure than the experience that I had on the mountain. We have the prophetic word of God. That's the sure thing that your faith is in. Now, that's absolutely right theology, and so if that's the right way to read this verse, it doesn't change anything in Christianity. But I don't think it fits the flow of Peter's thought here. We've already followed his flow of thought. The other way to render, translate it, is actually the version Sandy read earlier. It's to say that we now have the prophetic word made even more sure because of the experience I had and I was an eyewitness of on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, the reason that some Bible scholars feel uncomfortable with that translation is in a very therapeutic and individualistic and experiential age like the one in which we live in 21st century America. We want to be clear to people that the Bible is not saying your personal experience with Jesus is more real than the Bible. And that's absolutely true. That is, that is not the case. My own personal sense of whether God is with me or not is not more important than whether God says or demonstrates that he's with me in the word. This is absolutely more sure and my faith faith should rest on that. We know that because the experience Peter was talking about was not a warm, fuzzy, mountaintop camp experience, was it? Where everybody kind of got away from the dailiness of life and had a wonderful emotional time and threw little sticks in the fire and talked about what God was doing in their lives and comes home and said, I had a mountaintop experience with Jesus. It was awesome. Peter fell over as a guy dead. This was not a warm, fuzzy experience for him. That's not what he's pointing to. He's pointing to his experience as an eyewitness of Moses and Elijah coming down, significant in hearing the voice of God. The significance of that is simply this. The Old Testament, the prophetic word, was constantly saying a Messiah is going to be sent from God and he's the one that's going to fix everything. It's in him and him alone that our hope rests. Who is this Messiah going to be? And so who does Peter see with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, two of the key prophetic messianic type figures in the Old Testament. And who are they talking to? Jesus. It was a way for Peter and James and John to see that Jesus is the guy that Moses and Elijah were writing about for all of those centuries. He's the one. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament prophets said things like, uh, God's love is unconditional. He will save us no matter what. And other times they said, my, the blessings of my love are conditional. You have to obey in order to achieve my love. Which is it? Well, we weren't really sure. We believe the prophets were true, but it sounded like they were contradicting themselves. But it didn't make sense until Jesus comes. And we realized that the blessings from God were conditional for Jesus. He had to have perfect obedience and die on the cross, and that makes them unconditional for us because we're saved in Christ. All of the Old Testament prophets make sense in Jesus. And so Peter says, now we have the Old Testament prophets' word made even more sure because in Christ it all comes together and it all makes sense. Jesus is the one. When he says that the Old Testament is more sure, he doesn't mean it's more right than it was before. The words of the Old Testament prophets were always right. They were always from God. But we can be more sure that everything they said was from God because it all comes together in Christ. The confidence of a Christian is based on the prophetic word 
in the Bible, which is the word about Jesus. Secondly, that is the message that has the power to change your life. That's how verse 19 ends. That is the, power, uh, the message that has the power to change your life. This is the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. To the declarations of people? No. To the opinions of men? No. To the values of your culture? No. To the written prophetic word. This is what you will pay attention to, the Bible says, if you're smart. Because this alone is the message that has the power, it's like a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your own hearts. Friends, the world is a dark place. The human heart is a dark thing, and it has dark eternal consequences if we are not saved from our own sin. And the morning star rising, the morning coming, the light dawning in your life only happens through the message that is contained in the prophetic word as fulfilled in Christ. The eyewitness accounts of the apostle, the prophetic words of the apostles, and those are written down, of the prophets rather, those are written down for us here in scripture. And that's the third and final point he makes in this passage. Everything written in the Bible is not the interpretations and opinions of men. Not even good men, not even godly men, not even identified chief priests who themselves were installed in those roles by God Almighty. It's not the authority of the rabbis or the priests or the pastors. It is the authority of the Holy Spirit as he spoke through the prophets. Verse 20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These words are God's words. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 says that the words of the Bible are literally God-breathed. He's the one who uttered them. Yes, it was men who wrote them down, but those words did not come from men. This book has the authority for your life. That's the power of the scriptures. God speaks to us through his written word. God doesn't... uh, drive us, the Bible doesn't drive us to subjective personal experiences to know what God says. In fact, one of Martin Luther's more famous quotes was simply, if you want, he who wants to hear what God says should read Holy Scripture. That was the sola scriptura rallying cry. What does God want? It's right there in the book. It's right there in the book. Read it. Learn it. It's there. That's your authority. Sola scriptura. The time we have left let's talk about what difference this makes for us today. Because this wasn't just a a 16th century kind of deal. It was a big deal back then. But it continues to be a big deal. And as I mentioned, so much of not only Western civilization, Western culture, but church experience has been shaped by these truths of the Reformation. Our church's experience has been defined and shaped by this principle, as has every other Protestant church just like us. Let me talk about a couple of ways that relate to us as a congregation and then uh, as individual Christians. So many, so many ways to apply this and live this out. Let me suggest a couple. Uh, First, let me start with a question. Especially for you who are members of our church or those of you that are becoming members, this is an important question for us. Um, Whose responsibility is it to make sure that what this church teaches and follows is actually what's in these pages? Whose responsibility is it to make sure that our church is is staying true to the Bible in what it teaches and in, in how we're living? 
Let me give you a couple options. I'm one. You're the lead pastor, right? You're the guy that's teaching all the time. Clearly, it's your job to stay on the straight and narrow. Number two, it's the elders as a group and the pastors, the leadership structure within the church as a group. It's, it's their responsibility to see it to it that the church stays on the straight and narrow. Number three, look around the room, the congregation. Who's responsible? Answer, C. I guess I should have thrown in a D, all of the above, because that's what you, you know, you're supposed to do, but whatever. Just to confuse the student, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> correct answer, C. You realize the entire congregation bears the responsibility of making sure that their local church stays true to the word of God. Uh, boy, that's a whole sermon unto itself. Let me just say, one thinks of, of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1 taking the Galatian church to task. He's like, I'm shocked how quickly you guys have drifted from the gospel and you're essentially, you're tolerating things that are clearly not the Bible and they're being taught in your church and you're putting up with it. But he doesn't address that statement, interestingly, to the elders of that church. He doesn't address that statement to the senior pastor. I don't even know if there was one or if there was who he is. He's never even mentioned he addresses that statement to the entire congregation. Why are you, members of this church, putting up with something that is clearly out of line with the Bible? You need to straighten up and fly right. That's what he says. Many other statements like that in the New Testament. It is a congregation's responsibility to make sure that their church lives according to uh, the Bible. Because our primary authority is not a person, even a godly person, even a person in an office like I am as the lead pastor of this church, or like our elders are as elders in this church. There is an important role for leaders. Leaders are to be followed, but it is not primarily their responsibility. It is the entire congregation's responsibility. A couple of ways that we live this out here at Harvest Community Church. Um, we mentioned last Sunday evening at our family gathering, many of you were there, that the elders are proposing a, a revised membership covenant. That's the piece of paper that says this is what it means to be a member at Harvest, okay? We've had one of those for years. If you become a member of this church, you sign that covenant and say, yep, I'm signing off on all this stuff. Uh, we talk about what that is in the membership class. It's important to understand what membership is all about. Well, we're proposing a revised one because uh, actually the, the content really isn't changing, but we think the new one will be much more readable and much more usable to help us understand what membership is all about. One of the statements in that revised membership covenant says, by becoming a member, I commit to, among other things, quote, help this church stay faithful to the Bible, unquote. If you're a member, well, assuming our membership adopts this new covenant, <laughs> if you're a member, that's your obligation. We believe it's scriptural. By the way, a copy of that revised membership covenant is out in the atrium this morning. We want to encourage you to pick up a copy and take it home and start reading it, especially if you are currently a member of Harvest Community Church or interested in becoming one. Now, you're welcome to take a copy even if you're not pursuing membership right now, uh, but especially if you are a member, we want you to take it and read it. We want to be discussing it all throughout this entire fall, and we'll talk more about that as time goes on. We want to start a conversation amongst ourselves as a congregation about what membership really is and get us all to agree what membership means biblically and then once we agree the congregation will adopt or reject that covenant not the elders not the lead pastor okay pick up a copy of that but here's the point this is one of many reasons why membership matters 
I don't want to hear people say, I go to Harvest Community Church. I don't care. Lots of people go and stop going, and that doesn't matter. I want to hear people say, I belong at Harvest Community Church. I'm a member at Harvest Community Church, because that's a much more loaded term. It says, I'm carrying out the obligations of the member of a church, and I'm doing it in that local church. Membership matters, because we need to know what we're committing to. One of the things we're committing to is to keep our church true to the Bible, because Scripture is our authority, our final authority, not Us as a mob, not our leaders, not our pastor. It ultimately is the word of God. So we work that out by taking responsibility for that as a whole congregation. One of many ways we work it out. Here's another way we work it out. And there are more, but for time's sake, I'll just settle on these two. Um, Expository preaching matters. Expository preaching, that's, that's kind of the buzz phrase. That's the summary. That's how you describe it. Expository is a fancy word that just means explaining explaining, explaining what the Bible says. So expository preaching is when a preacher takes a sermon and he roots it in explaining something that the Bible says. Now, there's a lot of different forms and shapes that an expository sermon can take. It's not just one form. The defining characteristic is that the main principles of a sermon are anchored and rooted in a clear explanation of the main principles of God's word. Why? Because sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. Now, there's a lot of other kind of preaching in the world. There always has been. There's a lot of other kinds of preaching in our modern day. A lot of it is what we might call therapeutic or personality-oriented preaching where you go to a church and a guy who's usually way more hip and way more cool than I am gets up and he does his hip and his cool thing. He can connect with where you're living. He, he says things in a way that makes people go, wow, that's great. And he'll talk about things that are important to the people who are attending the church and, and, and talk about principles from his own experience and wisdom that help us think those things through and maybe sprinkle in a Bible verse here and there. But you can always tell a non-expository sermon because when the Bible is used at all, it's sort of used as a footnote or an afterthought. Some of those churches are incredibly hip and incredibly cool. Not every hip and cool church is like this. Some of them are very biblical. Praise God for them. But I gotta tell you, friends, this is not a hip or cool book. It's just not especially not where it contradicts our culture. You think of everything in this, that this book says about our identity. You think everything this book says about our gender. You think about everything this book says about, about marriage and divorce. You think every, of everything this book says about sin and the wrath of God and the sovereignty of God and the nature of the cross and the need for repentance. That is not cool. But that's the book. So whether the pastor's hip or whether he's more like me, you want to find a church that grounds its sermons in explaining what the text says and then seeking to apply that to who we are. We apply ourselves to doing that here as best we can. Don't believe anything because I was persuasive. Although I hope I'm persuasive and I hope I'm clear, but don't believe it because I was persuasive or clear. Believe it because you say, because of that sermon, I see this in the Bible myself, and it's my conviction that that's what God's word is, so I believe that. That's who we are as a church. A couple thoughts about how this applies to our lives personally. What does sola scriptura mean for you as the individual Christian? I want to suggest a couple of things. Uh, clearly, it means we, sh- we should be a people of the book. We need to immerse ourselves in the Bible. We've got a couple tools to help you do that. 
this morning. First of all, it means you should be reading the Bible. And what we have out in our atrium this morning is kind of a, I don't know what we want to call it. It's a Reformation resources table. See how hip I am? I just made that up. There it is right there. T-shirts, marketing. This is awesome, okay? We've got... (laughs) Sorry. We've got a Reformation resources table out there in the atrium. As soon as you walk out one of these doors, turn to your right or your left, whichever door you go out, it'll be right there. There's several things laid out on it. That new member covenant I mentioned earlier is out there. Grab a copy of it. We also have three different Bible reading plans out there because I know a lot of Christians who say, I want to read the Bible more, but I find it hard to do it. If you're anything like 99% of the rest of the human race, it doesn't matter how bad you want to do something, you won't get it done unless you have a plan. And there are a lot of great Bible reading plans that are out there these days. You get a plan, you set aside a time, you say, I'm just going to follow this plan, it will get you into God's word. I use a Bible reading plan that I just started this summer, I'm still using it now, I plan to continue to use it, I urge you to do that. There's a lot of good ones out there. For the sake of simplicity, we put three out there this morning. And I'd suggest that they're sort of at three different levels. Uh, The first is a a short 30-day, kind of one-month reading plan following the life and the ministry of Jesus. And I'd say if if regular Bible reading is just not something that's ever been a part of your life, and if maybe you've tried or failed, but it's just not anything you've ever gotten a hold of, maybe that's where you start. If you grabbed that reading plan, followed it through every day this month, you'd be done by October 31st. Starting today, you'd be done before the month is out. A regular pattern of just saying, what am I reading today? I'm reading those chapters. Read them, think about them, let that lead you into prayer. What a great way to start getting into God's word. If you've got a little more experience reading the Bible, we have another one that's a six-month reading plan that will take you through the entire New Testament. Not the Old Testament, but the New Testament. And if you're familiar with pieces of the New Testament, the more prominent or more often preached on passages, but you really don't know how the whole thing hangs together, that may be a great place to start. You do that, in six months, you'll be through the entire New Testament. Lastly, uh, we have kind of what I call the gold standard reading plans. That's just me. That's not the Bible. Um, and that is a whole Bible reading plan that will take you through the entire Bible in one year. There are several good ones out there. I just didn't want to throw too many plans at us, so we've just picked one of the three I like the best. Uh, This is not the one I use, but it's one very similar to it. It will take you through the entire Bible with daily readings in a year. Here's one of the things I like about the plan we have out there. It's a well-known one that the Navigators Ministry put out. Um, They build in like three to five days a month where you're not doing readings, the price is you have to read a little bit more each day. But what happens then is every month, there's a little bit of flex built in. So you don't have to feel like you're behind if you missed a day. It's like, hey, that's one of my mulligans, right? And you just kind of pick up and go right on. It's structured so that you'll read different parts of the Bible from one day to the next. You're not just reading it straight through. That helps keep it fresh. Um, maybe this is the time for you to pick up one of these plans and say, I'm going to get through the Bible in a whole year. By next October, I will have read through the whole thing. You can do it there's a plan. Uh, Last thing on the reading plans, Um, all of the the time frames are arbitrary, so don't worry about them too much. Like if you pick up the one-month reading plan and you get like three days behind, you're like, oh, I'll never catch up, and then you just want to quit. Don't worry, just keep going. (laughs) If you do the 30-day reading plan of 40 days, nobody's going to die. The point is getting into Bible reading, right? So let's do that. You can pick one of those up uh, out there. By the way, Bible apps often have reading plans in them, Uh, Some are better than others, but anything that gets you into reading the Bible, I'm all for. So take a look at that. Secondly, take a look at your church's, uh, take advantage of your church's ministries. This church pours tremendous resources, both in terms of finances and time and human resources, into creating a word-based, gospel-centered ministry. And that centers right here and right now on Sunday mornings when we preach, but it also goes beyond that into our community life groups. It goes beyond that into our Wednesday night Harvest Wednesday classes. 
If you're coming here and you're tithing and you're supporting financially and you walk in and you listen to a sermon and go, ah, good point, thought he could have said that better, that was nice, and you get up and leave, what are you doing with your money? Not that I'm suggesting you should stop tithing. But seriously, we put so much resource into putting the Bible out there so that you, as individual members, can know the Word of God better because this is your authority. Take advantage of it. Take notes during sermons if you don't already. Join a community life group. You can get in that, vol- uh, that process started this morning. Those uh, cards that are in the rack in front of you that Jordan referred to earlier, if you are not in one of our community life groups, our weekly small group Bible studies, we have some groups that have some room. If we need more room, we'll do whatever we need to to get some more groups, okay? Fill out one of those cards. Give us your contact information. Check that you'd like to be in a community life group, and you can take those to uh, the, the Reformation table out there and just drop them off. Uh, I think Pastor Dre is going to be out there as well if you have questions about community life groups after the service. Lastly, one final word. Um, This is more of a piece of advice, a caution. Um, Use devotionals, podcasts, and blogs sparingly and as supplements rather than as the main course. Just an encouragement there. Um, It is so much easier sometimes to pick up a well-written devotional study than it is to pick up this book. But the problem is that I am then gleaning from what somebody else got out of the Bible. And that's not actually experiencing God's word myself. That's experiencing somebody else's experience of God's word. Now, that can be helpful. That can be helpful. You listen to your your favorite preachers on a podcast, really good Bible teachers. That's a great supplement to make sure you're understanding what you're reading when you're reading it. And occasionally a good commentary or a few, not a big fan of devotionals, but that's a different story, a few devotionals, that are really good at explaining what's in the Bible can be really helpful to, under, to kind of illuminate our understanding or help us apply it to where we're at. They're good tools. I'm not saying don't use them, but be cautious. Be cautious. Uh, we don't want to um, just glean from what somebody else got. We need to have our own experience with God's word. Read the Bible, then read the study notes or the commentaries or the devotional, but make sure you're in the word of God first. Friends, 500 years ago, people started to realize it is super important where our authority's at. Is it in the teachings of men? Is it even in the teachings of the church? Is it in the teachings of your lead pastor, your elder board, your church community? Is it in the word of God? We believe the word of God alone is our authority. And so everything we do is designed to lead you into the word of God so you can know it, love it, and live it. And together as a church, we hold ourselves accountable to this word because it is the message that has the power to change the dark hearts of men and women so that the morning star will dawn and the light of Christ will rise in people's hearts. Amen? That is our message. That's who we are. Let us be a people of the book. Father, thank you for your precious, precious word to us this morning. God, we recognize that so often, um, even when our intent is otherwise, we don't often treat your word as precious or as valuable as it is um, because it isn't cool and it isn't sometimes easy, but it is the words of life. And I pray for every man and woman in this room whose heart is stirring right now and who knows that your word is important, who wants to treat it more so. I pray that you would help us as a church to resource people well enough that as a result of being here, we become more a people of your book and that we live out what we are then reading and learning, thus being the people of God. Would you use this church to glorify yourself as we spread your message that you have written for us? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.